Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, creator of the CBC show Trickster, Michelle Latimer, and filmmaker, Lara Gallagher. That's all coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. Well, hello again. Happy Sunday. And if you're listening from anywhere in Canada, happy Thanksgiving. I know it. it is a bit of a controversial holiday. For some, uh, especially for our indigenous peoples, but especially in a year like this, let's remember what we are thankful for. Also, to all the LGBTQ plus listeners out there, happy National Coming Out Day to you, whatever your story is. And speaking of stories... We have two great stories on the show today. Every year in Canada, uh, CBC Radio hosts Canada Reads, which is sort of a battle of the bands for books. And usually they take place uh, in March, April, but uh, this year, because of the pandemic, they were delayed. Although it did still happen uh, in a different format. Uh, You have five Canadian celebrities defending five different books. Some years they're fiction. Some years they're nonfiction. Uh, And sometimes there are a mix of both. Uh, The theme this year was one book to bring Canada into focus. Uh, You may remember uh, a couple months back I had on Jesse Thistle to talk about uh, his memoir From the Ashes and another book that was featured on the program this year was a novel called Son of a Trickster by Eden Robinson and it was defended by actress Kenetio Horn. Well Son of a Trickster has been turned into a show on CBC Gem called Trickster, uh, which was developed by filmmaker, actress, director, writer, Michelle Latimer. As an actress, she rose to prominence for her role as Trish Simkin on the series Paradise Falls, and she has also directed several documentaries, including Alias and the Viceland series Rise. She's also appeared on the stage in Unidentified Human Remains and The True Nature of Love, and has al- and later produced and directed the animated film Choke. She's also directed the film adaptation of Thomas King's nonfiction bestseller, The Inconvenient Indian, 
which recently re-premiered at the 2020 Toronto International Film Festival, where it won the People's Choice Awards for Documentaries and the award for Best Canadian Film. Her new project is the aforementioned Trickster. Episode 1 premiered on CBC Gem on October the 7th. This is my conversation with Michelle Latimer. So, um, you are, in, uh, are the showrunner for uh, the new CBC series Trickster, um, which we know was just filmed or was just featured. Uh, the book, anyway, Son of a Trickster by Eden Robinson was featured on, um, on the most recent season of, of Canada Reads. Um, how did you first become involved in this project? Did, did you come to it? Did it come to you? Uh, I had read the book, um, not looking to develop anything for, for camera, just for my own personal enjoyment. And um, I read the book over a period of three days, sort of nonstop. And the characters stayed with me, uh, particularly Jared and Maggie. And they just felt like people I know and I could relate to. Um, and I just felt like it seems like the perfect, I couldn't get, I couldn't kick them. They just stayed with me and I wanted to make it into a TV series. How do you how do you go about uh you know uh, adapting the previous work because obviously there's there's certain things in the book that you know don't work as 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 well you know on on, on the screen how how do you just how do you decide you know how true how close you stay to the book and and what you can alter well, I had spoken to Eden pretty extensively about that, and she was pretty comfortable with us taking some creative liberties um, for a couple of reasons. One is she tends to write very sprawling and nonlinear, which I love, and I wanted to preserve that quality, but um, but it still has to be sort of reined in for six episodes, you know? We didn't have 10 or 12 episodes to do that over. Um, and, then, um, and then I often just take the things that I remember or really stood out for me in the book. And I always put those in a wish list. Like, I know I want this scene where Maggie stands over Jared's bed and says, don't ever leave me and things like that. Like there were certain things that I just knew I wanted. And then we start to work thematically and sort of think about which character arc, um, what does it represent? What are we trying to say with that character and their journey? And we build it out from there. How involved in the production was Eden? Because obviously this is her you know, story and, and you, you were communicating with her a lot, but how, you know, in, in terms of sort of the day-to-day -day creativity, how much did you involve her and, and how much did she choose to, to step away and, and let you do your, your own thing? Well, and, you know, this is an experience I've had with every time I've done adaptation. The author is usually so tired of, like, they've spent, you know, five years or however long it is writing. And they're like, okay, I've written the book. You do the TV stuff. And so Eden was very much available to us. And, and I could go to her and ask her questions and have her read episodes and look at things and ask her for advice. But she wasn't in the day-to-day -day crafting of the episodes, like in the writer's room and that sort of thing. Although she did visit set when we were in Kitimat, which is her home village where we shot for a week and she did visit set and she was actually an extra in one of the scenes and she was always very supportive and she was definitely present um and made herself available but she wasn't part of the creative team in terms of uh creating this um on the adaptation writing side 
you there there are two newcomers essentially um in 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 the show uh Joe Lulette, who plays Jared and Anna Lamb who had done Grizzlies but this is her first big TV role um how much say did you have in the casting decisions and were you looking specifically to cast um newcomers to, to in in the roles yeah so i also directed all the episodes so i mean i had a lot of say in the casting but it was definitely a group decision amongst myself my co-creator tony elliott and the producers jennifer quadra and julia sereni from uh, sienna films and um and i was I, I i love when i watch a tv show and when I don't know the actors and that they just become the characters for me. Like uh, uh, Jared and Joel Lulette are kind of synonymous, you know, because I don't know Joel in another capacity versus like a well-known actor that you might see in a role. And so it was definitely something, but mostly I was just looking for the right people to play these characters. And um, we had extensive auditions across North America. We did callbacks in LA, like brought actors in from LA, Vancouver, Edmonton, Toronto. And really, um, you know, in the case of Joel, uh, we were really, really searching for Jared and had trouble casting Jared. But once we sort of found Joel through a self-tape audition he sent in from Medicine Hat, Alberta, um, he just felt exactly right. And then when we called him back, it, it was even more so. We felt that more so. And it was really important to me that the characters were age appropriate, the actors playing the characters, because oftentimes in film and television, you'll have a 17 year old character, but it's often played by someone who might even be in their mid twenties. And I just felt like it was important for me to have a 17 year old play a 17 year old. And that's what we um, endeavored to do. And that's what we were able to do. I, you know, I, I, I do know sometimes with that, that, it, you know, it's because of, of labor laws and if, if they're under 18, they, 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 they have to have a tutor and, you know, expenses, yes. expenses go up, um, with just, and, yes. <laughs> you know, CBC, a lot of CBC shows don't have the largest budgets in the world. So, I mean, that had to be a concern and, and, at some level. It was very challenging. We actually thought he was 18 and we, and then we found out he was 17 and what we were so in love with him by that point, we were willing to make those concessions, but it was really challenging because yes, those labor laws exist. He had to have, um, he had to have, have a, like a chaperone on set he had to have tutoring he had to have um you know sorts a lot of breaks like he can't work the regular day that a an adult actor can work so it there were a lot of technical challenges around joel being 17. um but you, you also managed to snag a, a couple of you know names uh in in the indie canadian community in in craig lozon who plays phil um of course great member of of the air fires and then uh, Joel Thomas Hines, the great novelist and screenwriter, as well as an actor. Um, how did how did those yes. two how did how did those two become involved, and and did that maybe give the series uh, a, a little more visibility? Do you think? Um. Well, uh, Craig, I know very well from my days in theater as an actress, and Craig and I have worked together extensively. So um, he was definitely on my radar for Phil, and then Joel Thomas Hines, I directed in his um, his television series Little Dog, and so I'd worked with Joel before, and um, I guess in a way had had him in mind from the moment I was writing Richie. Um, I thought he would be great for for that role. Um, in terms of the cred that they give, like obviously they have a beautiful breadth of work and I hope that will bring audiences. But mostly I just hope that the work speaks for itself, like the story yeah. itself, the strength of Eden's writing. Um, and I was really excited about people 
becoming introduced to Indigenous talent in a way that they might not have before. And so with the 90% of the cast being Indigenous, I was, often it's like maybe one Indigenous person in a in an ensemble or a few, you know, with maybe the exception of a show that's on APTN. And so I was excited to have, um, to reverse that. How, how do you pitch that to, to a friend of yours? You just be like, by the way, there's this character who's just like a real, just like, terrible human being and you're great for him <laughs> well joel's very playful he he uh, he's one of those people uh i'm talking about joel thomas hines he uh he he can play like the meanest character and he just has this glint of joy in his eye and i think that's what makes him just a, a magnificent actor he's one of my favorite actors to work with in my career and um and I don't know, he's game for anything. That guy will go anywhere. So I, I it wasn't, he's not for the faint of heart. Like he's, he, he's not easily scared away. Um, you, you know, you, you, you mentioned indigenous talent and I think definitely within the last two or three years, we are seeing more and more projects that, that are not only, you know, have indigenous actors and are, you know, about indigenous people, but they're in by, you know, indigenous filmmakers, writer, directors, producers, how how far do you think we've come in in uh, talking about and creating visibility for all types of um, indigenous stories and, and how far do we have to go? Uh, I think there's always more work to do. It's um, definitely not, not been an overnight uh, success in that. Uh, I feel that there's things that have been put in place 15 or 20 years ago that we're just seeing come to fruition now. One of those being the Imaginative Media Arts Festival. That festival started 20 years ago in Toronto and became a meeting pl- place for a lot of filmmakers and creatives and writers and producers to get their first work seen and also to um, connect and create a community that fostered support for one another. And I myself had my first film there and I know a lot of other filmmakers that I'm working with that they also did. And in that kind of infrastructure, things like APTN and, and, and Imaginative, they create an infrastructure for more work to be created. And, and, and it took 20 years, you know, and now we have the Indigenous Screen Office, which just opened last year in Canada. And I think, you know, we will see the fruits of that labor in probably one, two, 10, 20 years, you know? And so um, I think, you know, we can always do more, but it's also about supporting the work and creating an infrastructure to have sustainability in the community, in the industry. You, you know, you're, you're one of those talents that, you know, started off as, as an actress and, and has moved a lot behind the scenes. And yet, largely, you know, you've, you've d- kept them separate. Um, what what was the transition like like for you from 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 acting to to directing? Um, well, you know the beautiful thing about acting is you spend literally hundreds of hours on set, and it occurred to me somewhere in sort of my early days of directing that a new director is on set when they get to do their own work, and that's like a, a rare treat right but for an actor i mean when you're spending hundreds of hours on set you're watching people work around you you kind of get the lay of the land and then in addition to that as a director you have a language with which to speak to actors because you've lived it you've done it yourself um and so i feel like it was a pretty smooth trans trans transition on that level but um it's always like i I think i would be lying to say like you don't i had an inner voice like inside my head going like can I do this am I good enough do I have the skills to be able to do this and you have to kind of 
quell that inner voice and just keep moving forward, you know, and, and believe that you can. And so that's, I think for me, that was one of the biggest challenges in making that transition. Trickster does, uh, you know, have a lot of, of supernatural elements uh, to it. And I, and I think people underestimate um, how much, you know, the, the history of, of Indigenous storytelling and, and the supernatural uh, are, are connected. Um, what, what, why, why is it? Why, why is there such a, uh, an inherent and important um, con- connection be, be, between those two elements? Um, well, I think it's just inherent in our storytelling and our belief system. We've never been tied to just one rea- reality or one, like, and it's not a human-centric, it's a belief system. Like, when we do our traditional prayers or our sweat lodges, we pray to all living beings, human and non-human. We pray to insects and, and legged creatures and winged creatures and rocks and waters and land and all of those things have a personality and a spirit to them in our belief system and and when we tell our stories we um often are influenced by dream or by other worlds and there's a recognition for the life beyond what that which we can see you know and it's not so in that way it's not human centric in a way there's like an interconnectedness to all things in the universe and that includes things that maybe we can't see or that we believe in spirit or um, other beings or other planes of existence and so i think fundamentally it's just it's just like baked into the bedrock of our belief systems and so it it, it just it it just is natural i don't know how to other ways to describe it and so when we're telling stories, like all our old stories and that, there's so many different kinds of monsters and mythological figures. And, and it's exciting to be able to bring those to life in cinema, you know? What, would you describe yourself as, as a fan of, you know, supernatural movies or, or, or horror movies or anything that often includes non-human mm. elements? Yeah, I mean, I grew up um, just like, completely consuming uh horror um not as much sci-fi more horror and magical realism so i was really obsessed with like hitchcock um you know i read a lot of stephen king (laughs) i loved early david cronenberg all of that and then as i've gotten older and had more of an ability to contextualize this i've become to i've come to really appreciate the politics of, of genre fiction and what you can do with that what you can say about the world through genre um Another aspect of, of Trickster is uh, Sarah's involvement in, you know, uh, anti-pipeline activism. And, and there's a great line that uh, Jared says where he says, just because I'm not an activist doesn't mean I don't care. Mm-hmm. What What's your opinion of sort of the, the, the type of activism we see today? You know, there's the there's a boots on the grounds protest and then there's the other half of people that are, you know, sitting behind a, behind a computer and, and sort of supporting supporting stuff that way how 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 do you feel about how how we are being activists these days i think um well there's i'm sort of going to answer the question in two ways but the first thing is is i think we need both kinds of activists not everyone for various reasons can go out and stand on the front lines of a pipeline protest but we all have our ways of contributing to change that being said as i sometimes think social media makes it too easy for us to be armchair warriors you know and there's there's a like at some point we have to check our privilege and realize that like it's only it's going to take 
people on the streets. It's going to take citizen action and direct action to really see that the change that we need to see, as we've seen in, with, in, when we reflect on the George Floyd protests as of late. But when I, but what I was trying to do with that particular scene was I really wanted to show the nuances and complexities of being a young Indigenous person today. I think that one of the um, stereotypes that people can place on Indigenous people is that we're, we're um, very one with the environment. We're environmental warriors. And when you're an Indigenous kid and maybe you're still figuring out like where you sit with all of those politics, I mean, many of our communities are situated in places where um, in, uh, extractive projects like mining and for uh, like a timber industry and, and, and natural gas, that's the only source of income for our communities. And it's very divisive. Some people think, well, I need to feed my family. Of course, I'm going to go work for De Beers Mines. And other people go, no, we can't do that. We have to sustain our, our, our land so that future generations can enjoy them. And I think it's a really, really complex and nuanced debate. And I feel like Indigenous people are at the apex of that. And and I really wanted to show how that is a really challenging thing for young Indigenous people to wrap their heads around, especially when you're someone like Jared growing up in Kitimat, where the largest infrastructure, like a natural gas um, terminal, is being built. It's the largest infrastructure outside of the Alberta tar sands. Where do you sit within that debate? It's very easy to judge, but what is it like to actually walk in those shoes? And so that's what I was really looking at. You know, how care how careful must we be when when we're an ally because yes you know non non-indigenous people have a right to support these causes but is there a danger when we become too much of an ally and start actually speaking for these communities well i i don't think anyone can speak for a community that they're not inside of and a part of but i definitely think we can support and make face for um there to be voice and that's what an ally can do and uh, an ally can help create space ha- can learn can stand beside their brothers and sisters in this fight and um and so i think it's always dangerous to say you can speak for a community but to create the space um and and create the support networks that are necessary so that there can be voice that's a really really important role uh, another line i think it's wade that that says this he says um love makes you do stupid things um how 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 do you think do do you look at love differently now than maybe you did when when you were jared's age um uh well i know i would say that my time in standing rock documenting the occupation there taught me about how you can love something to the point where you are willing to sacrifice. And I realized like I've never been in a place in my life where I was willing to sacrifice everything. Like the, the, the most um, valuable thing I have is my own life. And I was able to put that on the line for something I believed in over that. And I've never been in that position in my life before, but I think these are the positions we sometimes find ourselves in when we're fighting for something that's much larger than ourselves. And when we think about what that legacy could be, not our individual legacy, but a legacy as a people and a community and what we really, where do we want to see the change, you know, and what is it, what's going to take to, to make that change. Uh, and we're seeing it all over the world right now, people taking that kind of stance. 
Uh, one other aspect that's that's important to to this story is is the music. You know, it's music is such a a big inherent part of, of indigenous culture. Mm. How closely? Dad, do... Can I go back for one second? Oh can yes. Can I go back for one second? Because when you said the other thing about love, I just wanted to say is um, the thing that I love about the book so much is that I feel that there's sort of a judgment sometimes on like, and it's based on mainstream ideas or or maybe it's even. I don't want to say colonial ideas, but there's like a mainstream ideals of what like perfect love is, like what healthy love is. Maggie loves her son. There's no question about it. She's not the greatest parent and she suffers from mental health and from addiction and substance abuse. And she's the product of intergenerational trauma from her mother being a, a victim of residential school. But it doesn't make her love any less. It just makes it different. And and I and I wanted to look at like how do we quantify these ideas of love or a healthy family or strength? Um, we kind of tend to judge them in a way if they're not like the perfect mainstream idea of that. And I love that um, Eden Robinson creates nuanced characters that maybe call that kind of um, that into question. You know, she presents different ideas that are more complex. Uh, what I was going to ask was was uh, music, you know, because it's it's such an inherent part of of indigenous storytelling, and there's there's great music in the show. Um, how closely do do you work with the with the composer to to create the, the the sound and sort of the the overall theme that that you and the tone that that you're trying to go for? Yeah, I mean, we have so many amazing artists in our community, and I really wanted to showcase them. And Snotty Nose Res Kids become sort of an iconic voice in the show, and they are from Kitimat Village, where the books are set and where Eden is from. So that was like a no-brainer for me. But um, one of the things I really wanted to do was have Indigenous artists cover um, non-Indigenous songs. So that was a part of our process. And so, yeah, the music in a way in the show is almost like another character. And it was something we put a lot of thought into and tried to sort of craft around the vision for the show. Uh, now, I've heard that, is this true, you're, you're already at work on season two, so it's it's already been renewed? Yes, that's right. Um, you know, eventually there, there, there comes a point where this the story that's told in, in the book ends so how how do you go about then continuing that story um well we're not following the book uh exactly like there will be things that people love in book one that they'll be like why isn't that in season one but i would just say be patient because you might very well see that in season two. So we're sort of flipping between books, but I, I, I so first season isn't exactly book one and second season isn't exactly book two. Um, but it, it is definitely inspired by, and there are, you know, there are things that you can notice in both, but I think there's plenty of story. That's the beauty of Eden's writing is there's a lot of characters and a lot of story and, and that's where the imagination steps in. <laughs> Uh, well, the show is Son of a Trickster, um, and it's having a, a preview episode, I think, at TIFF uh, in a few weeks. Um, and then does it have an actual uh, premiere date on CBC at all? All I see is the fall. Do you, do you, do you know? It will be announced very soon, but yes, it will be fall not long after the TIFF premiere, um, which is... Uh, yeah, which is the Toronto Film Festival premiere. So not long after that, you'll be able to see it on CBC. Well, we, we look forward to, to seeing it uh, when it comes out at, at some point within, within the next you know m m month or two. Uh, Michelle Latimer, yeah. uh, th thanks so much for your time today. I'm, I'm glad we finally connected. That was my conversation with actress, writer, director, filmmaker, Michelle 
Latimer. She is the creator of the new CBC series, Trickster, which is now airing on CBC Gem. My next guest is another great filmmaker who, although she is mainly a writer and director with several short films under her belt, she has also worked as a set dresser, costume assistant, editor, location manager, and a script supervisor. She is the writer-director of the short films One Dead Duck, The Hollow Rings, Stage 2, and Tumor Head. Her feature as writer-director was released earlier this summer, and the uh, DVD package release was released earlier this October. She is Lara Gallagher. The film is Clementine, and I spoke with her a few weeks back. Here is me and Lara Gallagher. Anna? Lara Jean Gallagher, how are you? How are you holding up? Pretty good, hanging in there. How's the, uh, how's, how's the quarantine life? Um, you know, it, it goes through phases. I feel like we're in the, um, what is this life phase? <laughs> you know, um, it's definitely gotten a little bit confusing. I have had just moved to LA at the end of January. Um, so being in a new city, but not able to experience it or do anything is pretty bizarre. Yeah. You know, it's funny, speaking of quarantine, I was watching um, Clementine. It struck me that Karen kind of almost self-quarantines at, at this cabin lake house. Um, mm -hmm. Why does, a, and we see that setting a lot used in, in horror films. For you, what makes it work creatively, uh, that, that type of surrounding? Um. Yeah, it's funny. I, I didn't really realize how relevant I think um, the movie ended up being for this time that it that came out in. But um, yeah, I I think it, in in my work I'm I'm really drawn to restraint in various forms. Um, I like a feeling of entrapment, and whether that comes from a physical location, you know, being in a remote area or, you know, being alone or being with just one other person or forced to be with just one other person. Um, or maybe it's even like a mental thing of, you know, wanting to break out of a small town or get out of your circumstances. I don't know. I'm just really, really drawn to that. I think that stories just come out of those kinds of situations, you know, um, yeah, feel, feelings of entrapment. I mean, I, I know you grew up in, in fairly, you know, small town, rural Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. how, much of, how much of that background do you think informs the types of stories that you tell? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think that's totally why. I think I, you know, just growing up in a really small place and being an ambitious person from a really young age and not really knowing where that comes from, you know, kind of just really wanting to see what else is out there, uh, the desire to get out of a small town or hoping that you can, the fear that comes from the, the idea that you'd be stuck there forever, or get trapped, you know, 
somehow like doing something that you don't want to do has, has always really driven me in terms of like my work, but also my trajectory in life, I think. Um, but yeah, I think I really do have a, a small town sensibility that, that informs a lot of basically everything. So, you know, it's funny. We, we, we talked about relevancy and, and the lead character in your film is named Karen, which has sort of, you know, become this, <laughs> th- this meme. W- was that intentional? W- was this written sort of b- before that happened? Where, where did that mm-hmm. name come from for you? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, yeah, I've thought about it a lot. Um, yeah, no, it was definitely not um, intended to be part of this idea of a Karen that we have now. Um, but it's interesting. I like early on in the in the script writing phase, I I was experimenting with this story being from Lana's point of view, and I always wanted um, there to be kind of like a, a switch of some sort, you know, like where we have this protagonist that we're not sure if we trust, like there being some sort of switch. And I think that the name Karen, like kind of just worked for me, um, at that period, it just seemed like, you know, just kind of the most mundane, uh, usual name possible yet that this person actually could be capable of doing something wrong or be just as lecherous as maybe these dudes that she's going after, you know, kind of this idea and how that name at that time kind of set us up to not expect that um, was sort of the, the inspiration for it. And yeah, I've known some, I've known some really awful Karens. I've known some really great Karens and I've known some really, you know, um, mediocre Karens. It's just, I think it's a name that kind of, um, at least before this moment, it could kind of be placed in any story and kind of, um, kind of work, you know? Why do you think it ended up being chosen for this, this meme or, or, or this idea that, that we're seeing now? Um, I, I actually read a New York times article about it and, uh, they were talking about how it's like, it's kind of a name of a certain time, you know, it was really popular. I think it was the most popular name in the sixties, like mid sixties. So it's kind of like this idea of this kind of like more baby boomer kind of, kind of woman. Um, and it was what I thought was really interesting about the article though, they talked about the hard consonant and how that's just kind of like a fun thing to spit out with disdain. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I totally get that. Like Karen and like a Kyle, it's just like, ugh so annoying you know so that really i thought that made a lot of sense you know the 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 film the film deals with karen going through a breakup which i think is 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 kind of a twist on maybe the the romantic dramas that 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 we see have you thought about how we as a society are told to deal to deal with breakups and were you trying to say anything about that Hmm. yeah that's that's an interesting question yeah i think i I really was. Um, yeah, I think for me, even though it's not on screen, but the backstory is, is that, you know, this is something that she's been dealing with probably longer than she should be dealing with it, you know, by like our society's ideas of, you know, how long do you get to be damaged or traumatized by a relationship maybe like three to six months and maybe after that it gets to the point that people are kind of you know sick of hearing about it you know sick of hearing you obsessed about it like it does kind of can turn into like an obsession or something unhealthy and it's it's yeah it's interesting because all of these things are sort of unspoken um i've thought a lot about how 
in Victorian times, you know, there was this really strict idea of a mourning period, you know, and how long you had to wear black or that you should wear black to be um, sort of understood by everyone around you that you're in this period of mourning after someone died, let's say. Um, and I was just thinking about how like it's, you know, it is so unclear now, like how we deal with with grieving of any kind, you know, whether that's a death or a death of a relationship. Um, and we're kind of like left on our own to, you know, act out in such a variety of ways. And I think especially now with how public everything is with social media, everyone's putting on even more masks and, and different, um, I don't know, just trying to do different things to cover up how how hurt they are, how fine they are, how much better they are. Often it's it's just all really, really confusing. So yeah, that was a big, a big part of it of wanting to tell kind of a different kind of breakup story, one that was really dealing with that really um, languid aftermath, after the anger is gone, when you're not sure, you know, you're at a crossroads, like, are you going to get over it? Are you going to be a sane person and, and try and grow from this and learn for it? Or are you going to let this thing consume you? And kind of like, that's where I think this, in that liminal space that Clementine lives. Karen appears to be very, you know, sort of broken and, and a little bit vulnerable. Do, do you think that in order to truly experience a certain kind of love that we need to be, have a certain state of vulnerability? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess probably. Um, do you mean, what do you mean, like Karen, in the aftermath that she's so vulnerable? Or do you mean like while yeah. she was? I just, I, I just, I remember hearing an interview years ago where, where the guest said you needed to be vulnerable to fall in love because I think it's when you're, you're at your most raw emotionally. Hmm. Yeah, I think to trust anyone, you know, in that way um, that you do when you're, when you fall in love or to allow yourself to fall in love, which is really allowing yourself to trust, there definitely needs to be um, vulnerability there. And I think that that's what can be so sad about a breakup like this, where, you know, I think what I was dealing with with Karen is, is like, she doesn't want to lose that part of herself that allowed her to to get in that state that that made her get so hurt you know so it's kind of this conflict of you know you want to be wiser and not maybe get involved in something the way that you did when you were younger but at the same time there's there's like a loss of of this thing that you know kind of makes you gushy and loving and and hopeful and you know all those things that we kind of want to retain throughout our life and not become a, you know, curmudgeon or somebody that's, you know, just um, bitter. So I think it's, it's, you know, just how interesting coming of age stories are. And that's why I'm just so interested in them, you know, that there's, you never really, you don't really know where you came from until you're already someplace else. And I think that can be really bittersweet um, and also just really sad. Well, that reminds me of, of the line that Lana says in the film where she says, you're only old when you know it, or I'm um, sorry, maybe it's Karen, but you're only old when you know what you want and you'll never get it. Mm-hmm. Um, did yeah. you think a lot about this, the, the concept of want in, in how it relates to, to age at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's funny with this film because you know that the age difference between all the women was was really intentional of course you know it was about you know these women kind of at different chapters but not not um you know not really that dramatically you know um they're all kind of seeing themselves at different ages than maybe their numbers actually show and how confusing that that can be um especially for you know we think of a character like lana or anybody having a coming of age is kind of from teen age years to adulthood or from childhood to teenage years. Um, but I like to see this film as a coming of age for, you know, Karen, even though she's already adult, she was a consenting adult when she was with Dee, but yet she didn't see herself that way or she sees herself as, as younger and not, not necessarily the older person that she is in relation to Lana. So it's just all kind of, um, kind of a confused muddled thing which i think age and an age especially for ambitious women just just is well and and i think uh, sydney sweeney who plays lana is is very good at playing those you know sort of mm. quiet a little bit mysterious but maybe a little bit manipulative type of roles and mm -hmm. you know she's one of hollywood's new it girls right now mm -hmm. was, was she always the first choice for for lana how did you come about uh, casting her yeah, we, 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 um, we auditioned tons and tons of people. So no, she wasn't somebody that, that we went out to first. Um, I found out about her because we shot this film entirely in Oregon and there happened to be a Netflix show, Everything Sucks, that was shooting um, just a few months before. And so I had some friends that were working on that project and I knew that it was dealing with um, lesbian themes with, uh, high school girls and so I wanted to just kind of like check out like who they got for that um, and I just saw her picture just you know on IMDb or something and I just loved her look because yeah with Lana it was so important to you know to find somebody who kind of you know she could be 14 she could be 35 you know like she just has this this wisdom I think behind her you know those just big doe eyes that is just so um, compelling but also confusing because I do think she's she is an old soul and really understands things deeply even though you know she's very young you know in real life and then also of yeah. course in in the movie so yeah that was really an element that's it's kind of hard to describe but when you see it you you know it and that was something when when she did her audition I was just that was it I mean I just I just loved her she um we auditioned with the scene the record scene where she first goes over to Karen's house and she starts off, um, you know, kind of wandering through the room and, and just to be so um, taken with her in the audition when she was walking around. And of course there was nothing there, but um, she just, she just really had this presence and this depth even, you know, in a strange room with nothing around her and no props. And I just, I just knew it had to be her. So I'm just so thrilled that we got to work with her. And, and then, yeah, her, her kind of blowing up right after we finished shooting this. So that's been a, a lucky accident. You know, a, a lot of actresses might not want to play similar roles because both Lana and her role in Everything Sex are, are quite similar ba mm -hmm. back to back. What, was that a concern that you discussed at all with her about maybe how to make Lana different? Hmm. No, we actually didn't talk about her Everything Sucks character um, because the show wasn't out when we shot it. I mean, she pretty much just came off of 
off of that. And maybe she had like three weeks off or something like that when she came back to Oregon to shoot Clementine. Um, so yeah, we didn't really talk about that too much, but, and, and I didn't really know beyond what was just on the internet, like what the show, the nuance of the show was about or her character changed. But I mean, I, I guess I have a different, um, feeling about Lana than her character from Everything Sucks. I feel like she's a little bit more Cassie from Euphoria, or I like to think that, um, you know, Lana, Cassie is is Lana after she finally gets to LA, and I'm kind of like, go back to Oregon, you know? Um, but I think her Everything Sucks character was a lot more confident and bold and kind of uh, sure of herself than, than the character in Clementine, um, where she's just kind of, you know, obviously trying on different roles and trying on uh, kind of different personas to, to find herself. And I feel like the Everything Sucks character is a little bit more assured. Otmara uh, Marrera, who plays Karen, also came uh, from a TV show uh, prior to sh making Clementine. How mm -hmm. did you come across her? She, she also auditioned for us. We had a great casting director who was based in L.A. that, um, you know, so we did do all the casting remotely, which was not ideal, but again, something that really kind of resonates with this time in an unexpected way. But um, yeah, OT just just came in and it was a similar thing where we, we saw tons of tapes uh, of women and there was just something really casual about OT's performance. Um, you know, she she was kind of covering a hurt instead of, of being so, you know, like forward with, you know, what she's thinking or something that I, that I really liked um, for this character, you know, like there's a subtlety to it. I, I think she's not, she's trying to figure out who she is too. And, and, you know, similar to Lana, she's kind of putting on a persona to try and figure out who she wants to be or, you know, how she wants to move on from this thing. But yeah, she just had this casualness. And then um, when we got close to offering her the role, that's when I, I dug into startup her show. And I was just, I mean, she is, I feel like OT is incredible. Like she's such a chameleon. I mean, to see her, I'm thinking of her audition tape, in my mind now and and her on the audition tape versus how she is on startup versus how you know the overall um performance in clementine ended up being like she really um can just take on so many different personas i mean she's she's beautiful like a model but she also has this like uh really gritty toughness and it's almost like she can change her face to bring out these different sides, which I can't really describe or can't really explain more than that. But like in the editing room, it was just, she really just looks entirely different sometimes from scene to scene based on like what she's feeling or what she's trying to do. I think she has a, a ton of control that I haven't really seen before um, and the, the ability to change. And yeah, it was, it was, when I wrote the script, I didn't really appreciate how physical it was. Um, and I'm just so glad that OT came with this really like action star sensibility where she could just do all these things that I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, I guess I just thought they would just happen or someone would just do it. You know, we didn't have trainers or no one teaching anyone how to roll a boat or swim or float or do any of these things. And, um, you know, OT just, she's kind of like a stunt driver too. I mean, she's just, she's just very physical and I, I'm really, really appreciative of that. 
you 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 mentioned that when Sydney auditioned, they they did the record scene, and it strikes mm -hmm. me that you know mm -hmm. vinyl and a record player is very apt for the lake house setting, um, but I think is still underappreciated art form. Mm -hmm. what, what was it about um, choosing vinyl and also the the specific song that that you play uh, that the characters play on the record? Um, how how did that fit into the to to your vision? Do you think? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I felt like it really just fit with um, this idea of the character of D, you know, which we really don't know very much about. So it was really important that these elements in the house kind of spoke to this um, really aesthetic, you know, artful person. And I think vinyl just kind of is that, you know, um, it's just something that it's not something that you mindlessly do in the background, you know, like turning on Spotify or something like that. It's, it's a physical act. And I think for, you know, an artist, somebody that works with their hands, I just feel like it really made sense that she would be a record person. And, um, and then for Karen and Lana to be aspiring to that, you know, um, with Karen kind of liking that she can teach Lana about something and, um, Lana either learning or pretending that she doesn't know, you know, how to use the record player. I just thought it was kind of a fun, a fun thing because it is so common, but yet at the same time, I don't know, it is kind of a specialized thing. If you didn't grow up with your, you know, parents pushing vinyl on you, I don't know if you would have, um, you know, come to it on your own until, you know, the past few years when it's become so popular again. But it's really interesting that you say that too, because we are going to, um, our, our soundtrack is going to come out um, in a month or two, and we're actually going to do a pressing on vinyl, which I just can't even believe that that is something that we're, that it's possible for us. Um, but it's just so exciting um, and a great way to have a lot of our um, more pop songs on one side and then our incredible score on the other side. So it's really like on a you know playlist, I feel like it would be hard to kind of mix these um, songs. Um, but vinyl really kind of provides this A and B side that um, I think is kind of a lost, a lost thing for a lot of um, soundtracks, especially, which, you know, never come out on vinyl. So I'm really, really excited about that. And, and the fact that we have a DVD coming out too, it's just kind of like all these 90s, you know, tangible things just feels really, really special. You know, given that music does play such an important part to the story, I'm curious, did you get the title Clementine from the song? Which song? Oh, my darling Clementine. Oh, <laughs> um, there's a few, there's a few Clementine songs um, that I found only since, but no, no. Um, yeah. The title really comes from, you know, early versions of the script and just kind of this, this uh, affect that I always wanted Lana to have where she was, always eating clementines, you know, this fruit that um, kind of is associated with kids and childhood, but um, is actually pretty provocative when you open it up. And so that was really kind of one of the first scenes I ever wrote was, was uh, her, you know, tossing clementines into a pool um, in a version of the script that took place in a motel. So it's just kind of like the clementine has been um, a consistent through line, even when so much of the script changed from when I first started writing or thinking about this, even as a short film to, you know, the film that we have now. But um, the song in the record scene though, uh, by Lightning Dust, the band, that was something that I had written into the script. Um, and I was 
so thrilled that we got to use it, um, which we had to figure out before we shot since we did really want to see the record um, on screen. So yeah, and I, and I love that just the reality of that song starting at the beginning of that scene and then taking us through, you know, we didn't have to cut the song up or make it shorter or longer or anything like that. It's, it really is just, just the song and it is the first track on the album too. So that also really felt, you know, real to me um, of just this, these two hanging out and, and you know, what, how this album would, you know, inspire the next stage of their relationship. You know, just on the note of the relationship, it, obviously sexuality plays a role. But did you? How would you talk about the difference between the, the, the relationship of sexuality versus maybe the 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 sensuality of it all? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I, I really wanted to write a script where just to see how far sexual tension could could go, um, and. I'm really interested, especially in female relationships and how I think these lines are constantly blurred. Um, and I really wanted, yeah, just the, just, yeah, especially in that scene that there's this intimate sharing um, and connecting and how, you know, storytelling can be more intimate than anything sexual, let's say. Um, so that was always kind of just a big thing for the structure of the story, you know, like how they can start off as, as friends or even as Karen kind of being like taking on this teacher mentor role um, and then kind of becoming like a protector. And then, yeah, I love her too. Like that was all kind of um, wanting to show gradations of that. And I think that just having um, a sensualness that kind of runs through all of that regardless of what label is on the relationship, I thought was really, really important. And I hope that comes through. Do you think women are maybe a little more fluid in sexual exploration than other genders? I mean, in my experience, I'd say yes, but I hope that that's changing. Um, I think that there's often been more of an understanding or a pass for women to explore and and who knows why that is, you know, um, maybe because there's, you know, a certain sect of guys that really like, like lesbians for their own sexual gratification. I don't know. You know, I, I wouldn't uh, try and under, try and um, claim that I understand how these things work or why they work. But um, yeah, I think that, um, I don't know. And I think that because even just thinking about just girls and sleepovers, you know, that I, I feel like that's just so much more of a common thing than, um, boys with sleepovers when you're growing up. Like there's this, this built in expectation of intimacy between girls, um, whether that's braiding hair or Hey, Laura, are you there? I am. Hi. Hi. Sorry about all this. It, it got right after we got cut off. I had another interview and then everything crashed at once. It's, it's been an interesting 45 minutes. Oh, did it crash for you too? Yeah. Well, I think, I think what it's because is after you left, my interview stopped recording. And so it was automatically starting converting. And then my lightning dust from the record scene, they're from Vancouver. Oh, 
Cool. Uh, uh, lightning dust, is that what they're called? Yeah, lightning dust. Oh, conversation. Um, yeah, I think that just girls in general, I, I think we grow up with this idea that our friendships are kind of, you know, meant to be really intimate from a really young age, you know, whether that's sharing clothes or having sleepovers, braiding each other's hair, like there's an intimacy with female relationships early on that, that I don't think boys um, have the same thing or that's not kind of promoted. Um, you know, who knows why, you know, which came first, society forcing these things or, or girls just doing them, I don't know. But um, yeah, so that's something that I'm, I'm just really interested in. I think, um, you know, there's such intensity, especially to like junior high female friendships that I'm really interested in. Um, and I think that, you know, there's elements of that in Clementine, I think, especially with the hair braiding scene. Are, are we, as a society, changing what, what friendship is, do you think? I don't know. You mean, what do you mean? Well, you know, I just, you know, because growing up, you know, I, I think there was certain ideas of, you know, male friendship and, and, and certain ideas of, of what a female friendship is or, you know, certain ideas of what a male-female friendship is. Mm-hmm. And it seems like all that is slowly going out the window. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't have kids or anything, so I don't know how these things are are changing or looking different for for you know young kids now but I I don't know I mean I I guess I just speaking from like a female perspective I I feel like there's probably more of an emphasis on female friendships than maybe I felt I had in my life or um just this idea of um being around strong women um, that I think people are talking about much more frequently. Um, You know, no one talked about that when I was a kid or a teenager, you know, it was kind of, you had your friends, um, but I don't know, there was, there wasn't like a, um, like an empowerment to that, that I think that there is now, or I could imagine or hope that that's kind of trickling down to, you know, young girls feeling like their friendships are, it's a source of power as much as, you know, just somebody to hang out with. Um, so I, I hope that's true. Ultimately, what do you think Karen wants? Um, I think, I mean, I think she's, she wants to move on, you know, uh, I mean, it changes throughout the, the story at the beginning. She wants to do something. She wants to kind of take, back, you know, like ownership of her, of her pain, you know, and do something, whether that's, you know, we think that's right or wrong, you know, going, leaving LA, breaking into her ex's lake house, you know, she's looking to um, put action to this like feeling of sadness. Um, But I think by the end, you know, I think she feels like she dodged a bullet. And because of this experience, she kind of recognizes how much she's she has changed and how she is a grown person now and and maybe that's only in relationship to Lana you know she only feels wise and um like she has agency when she recognizes that she has power over somebody else you know for better or worse I think that's that's true for a lot of people Uh, we were talking earlier a little bit about um restrictions and the majority of this story is set at one location um, at, mm-hmm. at the cabin in the lake house. 
what what does that that do for not only the the creative element of the story but also just the the ease of of making it mm -hmm. yeah it it's funny i you know i i really really wanted to make a first feature um so part of the conception of this film was making something small that I could just do myself if I didn't get any other support or any other financing, you know, all that stuff. So there was a producerial aspect to the whole creation of this thing. Um, but, you know, it's funny that it seemed like writing a script that takes place all in one major location is easier. But when I was hunting for that location, I realized, you know, if, if that's your one location, it's just got to be that much better, you know, and that good to, you know, not even just for the story, but also logistically, you know, it has to be, you know, feel contained that this would be the single woman's vacation home at the same time, it has to fit a crew, you know, um, there's no trailers or anything like that. Like everyone was kind of like all up in each other's face, you know, in that location. And so, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to, to being on one location like that, but hopefully, you know, what you see on screen is just that it worked. What ultimately do you want audiences to take away from this story? I mean, I do see it as, you know, a character study and a coming of age story. Ultimately, I think the themes that I'm really interested in, and I hope that come across are some of the things that we talked about earlier, just this idea that a coming of age story could happen at any age, you know, um, and that, you know, age is just a number, but it's also something that um, anchors where we think we're going to be with where we are and how that can be, um, can kind of lead to an interesting story. Well, the film is, Clementine, and it has its VOD release, is it the first week of September? Is there an official date associated with that? Well, it's out on VOD now, um, but it's our DVD is actually the thing that's coming out in September, and then the, the soundtrack eventually after that. Well, we, uh, we look forward to the soundtrack when it comes out. I encourage listeners to check out the film. It's, uh, I, I personally uh, enjoyed it very much. Uh, Laura Gallagher, thanks so much for, for your time today, and sorry about all the, the technical issues that we had. <laughs> That's okay. We're, we're dealing with a crazy time, so we just have to roll with the punches like always. Yep, yep. The, uh, the, the, this two-part interview. No. <laughs> um, anyway, stay, uh, stay safe out there in L.A., and uh, we look forward to the soundtrack of this film. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. Ciao. And that was my conversation with Lara Gallagher, writer, director of the film Clementine, which can be seen now. That does it for me today. Upcoming guests in the next couple of weeks include the filmmaking husband and wife team, Ruckus and Sky. Uh, earlier in the year, they had their film Becky and their new film, The Devil to Pay, is out now as of October the sixth, also famed animator Richard J. Gasparian on his 80s horror film, 30 Years in the Making, The House Sitter, The Night They Saved Siegfried's Brain. Be sure to subscribe to Endeavors on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on social media at Endeavors Radio or visit the website EndeavorsMedia.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye.
for now. Artists like to have a lot of sex. <laughs> <laughs>